Esther. We're in Esther. We've been in Esther. I'm excited to be here today. I haven't got to preach in six weeks, so I am. I have a lot of energy stored up, so I'm going to try to disseminate it evenly um, during today's sermon. Uh, this is part seven of our journey through the book of Esther. I realize we haven't been in Esther for actually seven weeks, I think. So I just really want to quickly recap what's going on. Um, the story begins back in chapter one, obviously. Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. You know him better by his Greek name, Xerxes. This is the same Xerxes that leads Persia against Sparta, the Battle of the 300. Same guy, Ahasuerus. He is king over the largest empire the world has ever known. And by the end of chapter 1, through a lot of different things, he essentially fires his queen, Vashti. By chapter 2, there is an audition process. Who will replace her? Commentators think it was somewhere between four to maybe upwards of 1,400 women. Uh, Esther is selected to be the next queen. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, our chief antagonist shows up. His name is Haman, and he has rose through the ranks of Persian bureaucracy to one of the, the high honchos. He is a man of great power, great influence, and he exercises that to convince the king to issue an edict that will lead to the elimination, the eradication, the execution of all the Jewish people. And Esther's older cousin, Mordecai, in chapter 4, comes to her, and he says, Esther, you've got to go to the king and ask for favor. Otherwise, we're all going to be dead soon. And Esther's really not sure about this. She's been queen for five years by the time we get to chapter 4. And she's like, listen, Mordecai, I don't know if I can do that. The king hasn't asked to see me in over 30 days. And despite the fact that she's queen, uh, Ahasuerus does not exactly practice monogamy. He is not a, a one-woman type of man by any means. And she's like, he hasn't called to see me in 30 30 days. I don't even know if I have his favor, right? There's been no conjugal visits in over 30 days, is what she's saying. And you're wanting me to go ask favor on behalf of the people? I don't even know if I have his favor anymore. And he says, Esther, why do you think you're queen? Why do you think you're in the position you're in right now? Is it not possible that God's placed you in this position for this moment, for such a time as this? So she goes, she approaches Ahasuerus, the king, in chapter 5 which is really a very courageous thing. And she asks if she can throw a banquet. She throws a banquet. She invites Ahasuerus the king and Haman, the main bad guy. And, and Haman gets back from the first banquet, and he is super pumped. And on the way, he sees her older cousin, Mordecai. And throughout the story, there's been tension between Mordecai and Haman because Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. And this is probably more than just uh, being respectful because in the explanation back in uh, chapter 3 of why he doesn't bow down, Mordecai says, I- I'm a Jew. So it seems to be that bowing down is more than just respect, that it probably has and conveys religious overtones as well. And he sees him after that first banquet in chapter 5, runs into him, and he's so furious, and he gets home, and he's like, listen, I've got so many good things going on in my life, but as long as that guy's alive, I just can't be happy. As long as he's alive, I just can't be happy. And so the advice, the plan given to him by his family is that, well, just just exercise your influence and power. Go to the king and just ask for him to be killed if it's that big of a deal. So that's the plan. Haman thinks, very first thing in the morning, I am going to go 
to Ahasuerus, first thing in the morning, first order of business, asked to execute and kill Mordecai. And that very night, the king goes to sleep. Ahasuerus can't sleep that night. As one of his attendants come, reads me a story. He says, read me a story. His attendant reads him a story. And one of the stories that is recounting his great reign occurred back in chapter 2, where Mordecai had actually discovered a plot on the king's life. And the king's life was saved. And you can imagine Ahasuerus in bed that night, and he's like to his attendant, hey, did we ever do anything to honor Mordecai? No, we didn't do anything. We should do something. Any, any of my officials uh, on duty? Well, actually, uh, Haman just showed up, right? You imagine, right? Haman's thinking, I'm going to get there first thing in the morning, ask the king if we can execute Mordecai. Oh, he's here? Great, bring him in. Haman, i got a question for you. Yes, king. So what do you think we should do? What advice would you give me for the man in whom the king delights to honor? And I, I love it because in chapter 6, the narrator lets us into what Haman is thinking, and Haman's thinking, well, who else would the king want to honor more than me, right? We should give him royal robes that belong to the king, a crown, let him ride on the king's horse, and one of your officials parade him around the city saying, this is what is done for the man in whom the king delights to honor. All right, well, I want you to be the guy, and I want you to do this for Mordecai. <laughs> he shows up thinking, I'm going to get him to be executed, and talk about a reverse situation. So he does that, and of course afterwards he's in a terrible mood. But he has a second banquet to go to. And that's where we pick up today. Chapter 6, verse 14. Second banquet. He's just got done showing and leading Mordecai around the city. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Queen Esther, what can I do for you? I know I asked you this the other day. You asked for a second banquet, so what can I do? I, let, me, let, me, let me do something nice for you, Esther. Okay, well... Here it is. Queen Esther answered, verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. I'm sorry, come again? thinking like what's going through the king's mind. You're sitting there, you're eating, you're feasting, you're in the palace, and you're like, yeah, well, Esther, I want to, I want to do something for you, right? You're thinking, oh, maybe, oh, king, let me go on a shopping spree. Let me do any number of things. And she's like, just save my life. What? <laughs> oh, we got it. That was right. Um, how startling that must have been for the king to hear this. How perplexing Confusing? Like, what? What? Why, why is your life in danger? I mean, all these things rolling through his head. It has to be. So she goes on to say and explain in verse 4, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
The phrase, we have been sold, no doubt Esther is making an allusion back to chapter 3 when Haman first approaches King Ahasuerus to encourage him to issue this royal edict that would ultimately result in the elimination of the Jewish people. Because Haman, when he was doing that, he said, listen, king, I am willing to just fund the entire operation. Right? He was willing to put up his own money. And it's not simply that he just believes in it this much, but this is also an investment opportunity because when they kill all the Jewish people, Haman stands the most to gain from their personal property and assets, no doubt. And that's, that's the reference here, having been sold. And so by this time, probably a good chance the king maybe is starting to remember that decree back in chapter 3, maybe starting to put together the pieces that Esther is talking about. And then at the end of chapter, or verse 4, she goes on to say, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not have been, excuse me, I would have been silent, right? If, if, we, if it was just a matter of us being sold as slaves, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. I, I read that and I'm like, really? Like, I just imagine like getting a spicy chicken sandwich without pickles, because that's usually how I get it. They put pickles on, right? You know, if, if it was just a matter of them putting pickles on my sandwich, I wouldn't have said anything. You think about what she's saying. Like, if it was merely like us just being sold as slaves, I, don't, I wouldn't have said anything, right? And uh, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. And this raises the question of well, what exactly is the king losing? See that? What exactly is he losing? She speaks of, it's not compared, our affliction, not compared to what, what he is losing. So what is that? And it's a little difficult to interpret. Commentators aren't really sure. It's, it's somewhat unclear. But I think it's certainly possible that what she speaks of the king potentially losing here are his subjects. I think that fits well within the context him potentially losing his subjects because they've all been dead as a result of the edict that he issued. And so at this point, Esther's all in. I mean, she's all in. She is fully committed, and she's taken a huge risk. She's placed herself in a very dangerous position. She doesn't know if this is going to speed up the timetable of the Jewish people being executed, starting with her. She doesn't know. She doesn't know how the king is going to react. I mean, this was already a big question mark for her going back to chapter 4 when her older cousin Mordecai first approached her. She really wasn't super confident. The king hadn't asked to see her in 30 days. And the king lives his life in such a way that he is like, ABC's The Bachelor, but in perpetuity. So, I mean, she, what is her life compared to whatever? I mean, yeah, she's queen, but what is her life? She doesn't know that. I mean, understand, this guy Haman, he is powerful. He is influential. He's the one that, that pushed the king in the direction in chapter 3 to issue this edict to commit mass genocide. Very powerful man, very influential man in the kingdom. But as we'll see doesn't matter. All of Haman's power and influence, it doesn't matter when compared to being 
in a right standing before God. Having great influence with the king, having great favor with the king, which he does, he does, doesn't matter when compared to being in that right standing before the king, before God. Having great influence with the king, yeah, that's great. Doesn't nearly matter as much as having like favor with God. And I say that because I think it can certainly feel scary at times. This is a scary moment for her. Scary. And it can seem scary when it seems like our enemies are prevailing against us. When the, dare I say, the Hamans of our lives and, and days seem like they're winning, whether it's taking place in our personal lives or in the political realm, it seems like, man, the bad guys are winning. They've got the upper hand. Well, then you need to look at this story because that's where there's a whole lot of hope to be found in this story. You know, sometimes we, uh, I realize we work really, really hard for people to like us. We work really hard to acquire people's favor. We do so. Sometimes, you know, maybe as a matter of security. Want the boss to like us, want that girl to like us, want that boy to like us, want our, whatever, right? Our professor to like us. I'm not saying that's bad. But sometimes, in the midst of expending all that energy and all that effort, and also feeling like we're losing, right, that fight against people who have more power and more influence, whether it's personal, whether it's political, we forget about another realm that matters a whole lot more, and that is the spiritual realm. That matters a whole lot more. It matters a whole lot more that we have God's favor. And how do you get that? Is the question. And I've heard uh, Mr. Piper say it like this. To get God's favor... I want to get God's favor. Okay, how do I do that, right? To get God's favor, you have to have it first. That's what I thought. So, how do you get God's favor? Oh, well, if you want to get God's favor, you have to have it first. How does that work? You're telling me, if I want to get God's favor, this is, this is far more important than things that happen in the spiritual realm, having the favor with the king of kings than any other earthly ruler or other person. If that's it, that's the goal, that's the end state, how do I get it? And you're telling me, I can't get it unless I already have it. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It shouldn't be super confusing. At first it is. You've heard the gospel, right? Good news, Jesus his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection? You've heard that? Then you're on the right track. And that's, that's, that's the, the point of grace. You guys know Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? How do I get God's favor? Well, you have to have God's favor in order to get God's favor. There's a reason why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit. Poor spirit, right? There's this picture of someone who is spiritually bankrupt. 
They've got nothing to sell, nothing to trade, nothing to leverage. And he says, there's the kingdom of heaven. They come to God, and they've got nothing. They're poor in spirit. They are spiritually bankrupt. They've got nothing to give him. Like, I've heard that somewhere, right? That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. So, yes, we're in this story. It's kind of like, all right, well, she doesn't know. Who's going to have more influence over the king? Will it be Esther? Will it be Haman? And I'm thinking, hmm, no. Is it be Esther or Haman? I'm thinking, how about God? God's the answer of who's going to have more influence in this story. And that's true whether it's Trump, whether it's Obama, whether it's Xerxes, right? Whether it's Ahasuerus. Hasn't changed for centuries. The king's heart is a stream of water, Solomon says. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. There's the, the illustration, right? God, his hand, stream of water, and it says the Lord turns it wherever he wills. It's true for Trump. It's true for Obama. It's true for Ahasuerus here in this story. And that should give you confidence. You struggle in your faith? You have doubts, right? Like I, need, I need encouragement. I need confidence. There it is right there. This story, right? Because it points you to the gospel. Who's in charge in this story? I mean, think about how Esther even made it to the point where she's queen. Commentators are like, yeah, she might have been competing against 400 other women, maybe up to 1,400 other women. And she gets picked, one out of 400, one out of 1,400. How does that happen? God, that's it. That's the answer right there. God's in control of this situation. I'm sure for her it's kind of terrifying, a little bit scary. As it is for us when we face difficulties, when we face challenges. We're like, man, I don't know how this situation is going to play out right now. Like, I've been in crisis mode all week long. I've been in crisis mode. My life's been kind of upside down for the entire month or two months. Christmas break wasn't good. Look at the story here. That should give you confidence, right? Like, wow, God, God is very much in charge, in control, on the throne, calling the shots. And in knowing if that's true about God, it should free me to live courageously and in radical obedience to the king. It'll also help with your stress and anxiety as well. It will. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, he's a little upset right now. You can hear it in his voice. Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? I imagine sounding something like that. He's furious, right? He's sitting at dinner. He thinks everything's fine. He's like, Esther, I want to do a favor for you. She's like, yeah, spare my life. What? He finds, like, he, I mean, that's got to tick him off. Like, it's, his, his queen's life is in jeopardy in his own house. Like, someone's trying to kill her. There's a threat. How does he not know about this? And there has been ambiguity through the previous verses on her ethnic identity. And the, the telling sign appears here in this verse because it still seems a little unclear that she's Jewish. Her identity is not known because if it had been known, well, the king, he would have known that Haman was responsible. And, and maybe, 
Maybe it's just because he's being totally caught off guard and he can't put the, the puzzle pieces together. Maybe it's because the alcohol's been flowing for a few hours. Things are just foggy anyways. Like, whatever the reason, he's still not sure. But from the king's perspective, outrage. Outrageous. He's the king. He's the king of the largest empire the world has ever known. Who would try to pull this off? Who would dare do this? And it's a really, I think, good question. Because if that's preposterous for someone to do this to Ahasuerus, if it's that preposterous for someone to challenge the king, then... How dare someone ever challenge the king? How dare someone disregard God? I mean, Hashuerus, he'll have your head. And yet, who would ever oppose God? Who would do that? And yet we do. Over and over again over and over again, all the time. We sin. We rebel. We know, we, know, we know what we're supposed to do. We know the path we're supposed to be on. We're like, yeah, whatever. Screw you, God. You're like, I don't say that. I, yeah, I know, but you do with your actions sometimes. You know, you, you see the emotion captured in this verse, and it, it certainly, I think, captures what Ahasuerus is feeling in that moment. But I think more than that, beyond that, I think it also is helpful in capturing the emotion that God feels. You know, God gets angry. <coughs> he gets angry, guys, when we sin. He gets insulted. He goes, if it's that preposterous, right, that someone dared do this to Ahasuerus, think about it. The position God's in. I think when we think that way, it will help us to take our sin more seriously. So Esther calls him out. Gosh, you imagine how awkward this is. And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. If you're sitting there, right, you think everything's fine, and you get called out, you get outed right there. The awkwardness is off the scale. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And you think what might be going through his mind right now, how seriously he has miscalculated this entire situation. I mean, he thought he could get away with it. That he could escape the judgment, the justice that is about to be served. It says Haman was terrified. That is his plotting, his scheming, his lies. They've all been uncovered by the one who has more power than he has, that is the king. He, he can't hide. Haman cannot hide any longer. No more than we can hide our sins from, from God. They're, they're in full view before God. They, they always are in full view before God. You might be the only one that is aware of it or what's taking place. Since I last preached seven weeks ago, it's a long span. God's aware. He sees. He knows. You're not, you're not hiding anything. You're not getting away with anything. 
So yeah, Heyman, he's having a panic attack right now. And the king arose, verse 7, in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king is angry. I just imagine he needs to step out, collect his thoughts, take a breath, assess the situation, figure out what a course of action would be in this moment. Why is he angry? He's angry because he's been tricked. He's been tricked. And to a certain degree, yes, while he's angry at Haman, I think he's got to be somewhat mad at himself for foolishly going along with this, right? For issuing this decree that ultimately, like, it means the death of Esther. Well, he comes back in. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king and they covered Haman's face. And so what we have here in verse 8 in typical Near Eastern form, Haman on the ground, like grabbing at probably Esther's feet, kissing her feet, begging for forgiveness, which is probably why uh, the king interprets Haman essentially as trying to molest her when he leaves the room. And the true irony here is here we have Haman who has throughout the story been so mad at Mordecai because he won't bow down to him, now bowing down before the feet of a Jew, bowing down before the feet of Esther. And I think this verse, it really captures so well the character of our characters. Haman is this prideful man with a cowardly heart who's plotting and scheming and lying has now been found out. He thought he could hide it. He thought he could get away with it. It's all been discovered, right? Are you like him? You like this guy right here? Are you like him? You're like, I've never tried to commit mass genocide. Okay. I understand that. The pride, the cowardice, the plotting, the scheming, the lying. You're thinking, I know it's wrong, but you know what? I haven't been caught yet. You were caught the second you did it. You were. And then you've got Ahasuerus, the king. Here's a guy who is easily influenced, surrounds himself with people that are just majorly bad news and yet he is ultimately weak in spite of his appearance of power he's weak in spite of his appearance of power he's easily influenced are, are you like him you like this guy so easily influenced one way or another like you struggle to even have like an original thought or opinion and you always have to listen to what other people say And on top of that, to make matters worse, the people that you are listening to, the relationships that you have surrounded you, they're just terrible relationships. Whether they're romantic, whether they're platonic, like they're just terrible relationships. right? That's Hesuerus. He surrounded himself like people like this loser Haman. 
It was just totally bad news. You like this guy? You like this guy? And then we have, we have Esther, who is courageous and steadfast. I could say more, but that, I mean, pretty much sums her up. She's courageous, she's steadfast. And here's the thing. In her understanding of God, who he is, who is he, who is, who is God? Um, he's the one who Solomon says, right? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he wills. In, in our understanding of God, and that's God, our knowledge should lead us to greater courage and radical obedience to him. You look at Esther, man. Oh, man, I want to be like Esther. She's so courageous and so steadfast. I want to be like her. That's good. How can I be like her? The, the more you understand how great, how big your God is, the more that will allow you to trust him and totally, radically obey him. And she's in one of those really radical obedience kind of sagas right now, so really fits well in the context of this. And so they throw a bag over his head. They take him off to be executed. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. It's 50 cubits high, and the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Sweet justice. Right. It is. You know what that makes me think of, that, that last statement? Then the wrath of the king abated. Hearing that, it Seen justice done. Haman executed. Ahasuerus' wrath is abated. It makes me think of God. And, and that might seem strange. Makes you think of God? Yeah, it, it does. And I realize that might seem strange. You're like, the, the king's wrath was abated, and you're saying that sentence right there makes you think of God. I'm like, yes. And I realize it's because most of the time in church context, we, we really tend to lean heavily toward, if we talk about the attributes of God, the love of God. Okay, we do so. Probably, you know, for every ten sermons, if it's between love and wrath, we're going to talk about love, nine of those ten sermons. It, it, that's not a bad thing, right? I love the love of God. I love that. Um, but there's also such thing as the wrath of God. There's such thing of the justice of God. If you don't believe me, we just look at a passage like Romans chapter 2, verse 5, right there on the screen. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Someone might say, well, you know what? Think about this situation for a second. Can we really be that hard on Haman? Usually I say yes. 
He doesn't know Esther's identity. Because what if, what if, let's back this up. What if he knew that she was Jewish? Well, instead of wanting to kill all the Jewish people, he'd say probably I just want to kill all of them minus Esther, right? I, I don't know. That's my thinking, right? I don't think it absolves him of anything. But my point is, is that ignorance is not an excuse before the living God. And if you don't believe me, we'll look at Proverbs 24.12. Proverbs 24.12. If you say, behold, we didn't know. I didn't know that was wrong. I wasn't supposed to do that. Does not he who weighs the heart perceives it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay man according to his work? He knows. He's aware. And I say that because I don't want anybody taking a page out of Haman's playbook and thinking that, and making some terrible miscalculation and thinking, I've gotten away with it or I'm not going to get discovered. God already knows. He does. So, yeah, I, I love the love of God. But we cannot, like, just ignore the fact that the Bible speaks of the wrath of God. And that's a really terrible thing. The wrath of God is a really terrible thing. Understand, it is the love of God that saves us from the wrath of God. That's what you have to understand. It is the love of God that saves us from the wrath of God. Or J.I. Packer, I think he summarizes the wrath of God quite well. He says this, God's wrath in the Bible, it's, it's never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It's not like that. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. But it is definitely a real thing. The wrath of God is a real thing. And God's wrath, guys, is his love in action against sin. It's, it's love in action against sin in which he demonstrates both love and justice through the sacrifice of his son. This is, this is what Jesus' propitiation was all about that Romans chapter 3, 25 and 26 speaks of. And I'll read it right here for us now. Romans 3, 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. I'll come back to that word is really important by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins talk about what a merciful God and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus he put forward his son as a propitiation the, the word it means that the propitiation of Jesus was that he took the wrath of God and then turned it to favor. He, he took the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us and then turned it to favor. That's it. And so, yes, I'm at the end of the story, right? And the bad guy experiences sweet justice. He's hanged. And then it says, the king's wrath abated. And the difference here, and the difference with God, is that whereas the king's wrath abated, okay, wrath over, 
When Jesus died on the cross for us, that propitiation, it wasn't just wrath over, but it was wrath over. Now he views us favorably. That's why I said from the very beginning, because Esther's in the situation, right? Who's going to have more influence? Who's going to have more power? Who's going to have more favor with the king? Haman, Esther, who's going to win out? And oh, by the way, if it really ultimately the answer to that question matters not who's going to have it, but knowing that God has it, knowing that it's a good thing to have God's favor, then how do we get God's favor, right? Well, you have to have God's favor in order to get it. But, but what can I do to get it, right? But that's the whole point of the gospel. You, you can't do anything. He, he does it. He does what you can't do. He does what you can't do. Because truthfully... We deserve to be up on the platform with Haman, experiencing the wrath of a holy God upon us. Every single one of us, right? We are guilty like Haman. I get it. You're not plotting genocide. But every single one of us have sinned, right? Have challenged, right? You think of Ahasuerus when he discovers, how dare you? Like, you know, how upset he might be. Like, we do that every time we sin before God. We deserve to be on the platform being executed, coming under the wrath of God, and yet it was the love of God that spared us from His wrath. And I think it's important that you don't forget about the wrath. We, we love to talk about the love. He's loving. He's loving. He's so loving. What does that do, right? Oftentimes it just inflates our ego. Oh yeah, He loves me so much. I must be awesome. You're not awesome, right? If you were awesome, you wouldn't need a Savior in the first place. No, because he is a totally just God and his wrath is going to be poured out on sinners who rebel. It's a treasonous thing to rebel against the living God. And yet that further illuminates his love. The love of God that saves us from the wrath of God. That's good news. God, we love you. And we thank you that you are, uh, you're both loving and you're both totally just. And uh, we thank you for paying that payment. We thank you for taking the wrath of the Father upon yourself and then turning it to favor. Because at the end of the day, we're just as guilty as Haman. Lord, and I pray, Lord, that um, in knowing you better, and uh, we get to know you in this story. I mean, your power, your wrath, your mercy, your love, very much on display in this story. I pray that that would free us from our Haman-like tendencies. That would free us from our Ahasuerus-like tendencies to live in radical obedience to you, the King of Kings. Lord, help us. Give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in who you are. That's my prayer for us today. In your name we pray, amen.